0: Hello and welcome to
1: Planet Money. I'm Zoe Chase.
0: And I'm Jaffe Walt. Today's show, What We Pay for the Stuff We Love. It is one of those special episodes where we bring stories that aired on the radio to the show.
1: And so the things we love, right? they are books, toys, clothes. This is what we buy in a store that brings us joy. And today's show is all about getting behind the prices for those things that we love so much. And in particular, two things that are mysteriously priced. So first up, the books.
0: So prices for books have been changing a lot in recent years, largely because of ebooks. And the story that you always hear about ebooks is that they are destroying the publishing business. E-books are cheaper than books you buy in a store, so people then expect to pay less for books. This is all bad for publishers, right? Well, there's a more interesting story. Zoe, you did this piece. Let's hear it.
1: There's a big problem with digital books for publishers, the same problem that exists for the record labels. People steal digital content, and there's not the same stigma to pirating an ebook as there is to holding up a Barnes & Noble. So that's a big issue. Turns out, though, that even with that, some publishers are doing great. Yeah,
0: you know, we've had an incredible year. Last year was
1: the best year in the company's history. This year, was we beat that, which I didn't think was even possible. Dominique Rocca is CEO of Sourcebooks. She says it's because of digital publishing, not in spite of it, that they're doing so well. It's been an amazing ride. Turns out there are a bunch of huge advantages for publishers. A big one, the price isn't fixed the way it is with physical books.
2: The challenging thing about physical books is that we price once.
1: So 10 years ago, a publisher sends out their books to the bookstore with the price stamped on the cover. After that, they were done. They couldn't put it on sale to sell more books. The exciting thing about digital books
0: is that we actually get to test and price differently. We can even price on a weekly basis.
1: Once you have this tool of a price that can be adjusted in an instant, you can do whatever you want with that tool. You can use it, say, to get publicity. That's what Little Brown did with the title An Unfinished Life, a Kennedy biography. In the middle of November, Little Brown dropped the price from $9.99 to $2.99 for 24 hours, the digital equivalent of a one-day-only sale. That sparks sales. It gets people talking about it, and you've just expanded the market. Terry Adams is a publisher at Little Brown. Dropping the price of An Unfinished Life got people's attention. Here, we had an opportunity to increase the audience. To goose sales. In this case, the book launched up onto the bestseller list. And because you can jack it back up again, you're not stuck there losing money. This kind of promotion leads to discovery, something that used to just happen in bookstores. But with fewer of those around, publishers are using price to create discovery. It's like making music available for streaming so that someone will discover an artist and then buy a record. Speaking of. If you read the new iBook, 40 Years of Queen, you'd find it's got links in it to iTunes, where you could buy this. Another huge advantage of eBooks, publishers can sell you things inside your book. It's still quite rare, but that's where digital publishing is headed.
0: One thing that seems like it must be bad for publishers is that it is hard to give eBooks as gifts. Like over the holidays, I thought about giving a lot of people books, but I know they read Kindles, and that just doesn't seem like that's done.
1: Yeah, I mean, weirdly, that's good for publishers, though, right? Because people do buy physical books as gifts a lot. That's how people give books still. So it's just another revenue stream for publishers, and and people still haven't figured out a good way to give a cheap eBook to someone. Okay. Should we do the next story? Yes. Our next piece is about the moment when you go to the store and you already know what you're going to get. You're psyched about what you're buying. You know about it already. You don't have to be convinced to get it. But then you see the price tag and it just feels way more expensive than... The experience you had planned in your head of buying the thing. And, Hannah, you found this out when you went to go buy something for your beautiful son, Jacob <laughs> Francis Ritter.
0: <laughs> I went to buy him Legos, and I had no idea. Legos are really expensive. I wanted to get just like a basic bucket of Legos for toddlers, and it was fifty nine ninety nine dollars 99 for 102 Lego pieces that are basically just plastic blocks. Let's hear the piece. Legos cost a lot of yeah. money. Yeah,
1: actually, that's, what, yeah. Legos that's what's fair. Yeah, they're really
0: expensive. So when I met Luke Siegel, Marius Tanase, and Nicholas oh, okay. O'Sullivan, fourth-grade Lego oh. experts, I asked them, "Is that normal? How expensive do Legos get?" Oh,
1: like two hundred? No, no. I've no. seen an expensive. No, this but is an actually, expensive
0: one. Like that's $400. Bucks. Bucks. No. No, 400. four hundred dollars. 150 No, I've seen one that's four hundred before. Money. Lego appears to be basically immune to competition. It has about 70% of the construction toy market. And the question is, why? Again, these are plastic blocks we're talking about. Lego's patents expired a while ago. So how hard could it be to make a cheap knockoff? I brought this question up with Luke, one of the nine-year-old Lego experts. And, you know, said something like, what's so hard about making Legos? They pay attention to so much
1: detail. I've never saw a Lego piece that has a little bump on it that couldn't go
0: together with another one.
2: Lego spends a lot of attention on clutch power.
0: Experts of all ages agree on this, although David Robertson had a fancy term for what Luke is talking about. Robertson's writing a book about Lego's remarkable success, which he says has had a lot to do with clutch power. Clutch power? Clutch power, yeah. What is
2: that? Yeah, well, what you want when two bricks stack together is you want that satisfying click
0: David Robertson told me, look inside any Lego brick, he calls them bricks, and there are three numbers in there. Those three numbers tell you exactly what kind of Lego brick you are holding, say a 2x4. They tell you when it was made, from what mold, and in exactly what position in that mold.
2: So if this brick didn't fit right, if it was too loose or too sticky or, or snapped apart, they could go find mold 238 and look at the 15th brick impression in that mold so that they could fix it and make sure that it continued making every single one of the 60 million bricks that it's gonna make exactly right.
0: For decades, this is what kept Lego ahead. But over the last several years, a competitor has emerged with clutch power that at this point rivals Lego, Megablocks. Megablocks are plastic blocks that look just like Legos, snap onto Legos, and are often half the price. So Lego tried other ways to stay ahead, like suing. David Robertson says Lego tried to trademark its block, basically say nobody has the right to make a stacking block that looks like a Lego.
2: That didn't fly, and it didn't succeed anywhere. Um, every single country that they tried to make that argument in decided against Lego.
0: Lego needed to do something Mega megablocks could not copy, something dramatic, big. <laughs>
2: Build your own galaxy with the three new planets from LEGO Star Wars.
0: LEGO got exclusive rights to Star Wars. If you want to build a Death Star, LEGO is now the only company that can make that happen.
2: As a business decision, it was maybe one of the best ever.
0: And LEGO kept going, licensing other properties.
2: There's the LEGO Indiana Jones series, LEGO Winnie the Pooh.
0: There's
1: a Toy Story LEGO.
0: Yeah. Also, for my birthday, I want the Hogwarts Castle for... Harry Potter. David Robertson says buying rights to Star Wars and Harry Potter saved Lego. The money was huge, but more importantly, it taught Lego that what customers wanted to do with the blocks was tell stories. So Lego makes or licenses the stories customers want to tell. And by doing that, Legos managed to keep lots of kids feeling the way Luke does.
1: Like if you were talking to a friend, you wouldn't say, oh my God, I just got a big set of mega blocks. Like, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be like, oh, my God, when you say Legos, they would probably be like, awesome, can I go to your house and play?
0: But, of course, Zoe, on this score, Megablocks can copy Lego, too. They can buy the rights to properties kids love, and they are doing that. Megablocks now has Thomas the Tank Engine, Halo, which is really popular in the Megablock category, and Barbie.
1: So I have a different idea, which is forget $60 for Legos or whatever you would pay for Mega Bloks, which is that you can just print your own. You can make your own blocks these days with a 3D printer. A
0: 3D printer. You keep talking about 3D printers. This is like a mini obsession of yours, though. Yes. So you've been wondering, can 3D printers transform the economy. Like there is all this hype about how 3D printers are going to be game changing as a technology. They're going to be like the telegraph or the personal computer. And Zoe, you wanted to know, you know, first of all, could it be possible that they are a game changer? And more importantly, what exactly is a 3D printer? Here's that story. First,
1: the 3D printer is the biggest misnomer ever. Do not think printer. Printer. Think Magic box that creates whatever object you can imagine. Watch it. Watch it. It will come. (laughs) There it goes. (gasps) Pete Weimershausen peers into one of the printers about the size of a refrigerator. He's the CEO of Shapeways, a 3D printing company in New York. Inside, razor-thin layers of raw material, powdered acrylic, powdered nylon, powdered silver, whatever, are deposited precisely one on top of the other, You look through the window, like an oven window, and see the object taking shape from the bottom
0: up. And this is how it grows, layer by layer.
1: After a few hours, you've got stuff. All kinds of stuff. Um, So here we have a shoe.
0: Rings, bracelets, pendants, iPhone cases, uh lots of them, iPad cases. Seeing
1: it in front of you, it's hard not to imagine this will have a radical impact on the economy. It's miraculous looking. Press a button to make an actual thing out of raw materials. That looks like a revolution. But the industrial revolutions we're familiar with, they're very different from what I'm seeing here. Say the steam engine. Those technologies centralized production, made mass production of stuff into huge business. Terry Wohlers is an analyst who's been watching 3D printing technology since its inception 20 years ago. And he says that's not the right comparison to make. The 3D printer does not replace what came before it.
2: If you're producing, say, trash cans or stadium seats, you'll more than likely produce them the the old way uh, in Asia, using conventional methods of manufacturing.
1: What is revolutionary, or at least innovative, is how flexible this allows manufacturing to be. Right now, you can only 3D print out of certain materials. But soon enough, you'll be able to make stuff out of anything. That's how Weimershausen, the 3D printing CEO,
0: sees it. Say you want a t-shirt that is perfect for you. Now, I think in a few years we can print clothing. And then you can have clothing without sizes, but you have the size that fits you.
1: So You don't order a small, medium or large. You order like a Zoe. Yes. Just imagine for a second everything you would want custom-made super cheap. And this is already happening. You fly in planes from Boeing and others with parts in them that have been 3D printed. Right now there are 30,000 people walking around with 3D printed titanium hips inside. Way less expensive than they used to be.
2: And they're just getting started. The, The possibilities in orthopedic manufacturing really is almost limitless.
1: In the future, analyst Terry Wohler says... Forget about titanium or even cotton. Try human tissue.
2: You lose a finger, you print out a new one.
1: Yeah, like actual body parts, printing out new fingers using your cells.
2: Bones and bladders and eventually kidneys and so forth.
1: There's another thing to keep in mind, though, about the arrival of 3D printing. If the industrial revolutions that we know centralized things gave birth to enormous companies that make a massive amount of things... 3D printing kind of reverses that process.
2: What's new is the fact that the most advanced, you know, machines are now as as accessible to regular people as they are to the biggest companies.
1: Chris Anderson is not strictly a regular guy. He's the former editor of Wired Magazine, now the CEO of a robotics company. He says the 3D printer democratizes who gets to be in manufacturing. Anybody with a good idea can have a pretty good prototype really cheaply, and then bring that product to the masses.
2: Taking a product from one to many, taking a product through its entire cycle from invention to creation and marketing and building a company around it, that just wasn't possible in most of the 20th century because manufacturing was just so hard and inaccessible.
1: So if you want to go into business manufacturing stuff, there's a much lower barrier to entry. Soon enough, Anderson says, you might see 3D printers showing up at Walmart or Barnes & Noble on desktops, in the office, whatever. That doesn't mean everybody will do it. But the fact that it is now so easy to be the boss of your own factory, that is a pretty revolutionary idea.
2: You know, Karl Marx's line that, you know, the power belongs to those who own the means of production. And regular people didn't own the means of production.
1: And isn't it funny how it's working out? It's capitalism that's taken the means of production and turned it into a point-and-click experience for anyone. That is our show today. As always, please let us know what you think. Email us, planetmoney at npr.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, npr.org slash money, all that. I'm Khana Walt. I'm Zoe Chase. Thanks for listening.